urging again. What, what do you think he means by urging? We saw that in verse 3 of chapter 1 that he urged him to stay on at Macedonia. What is an urge? What is somebody doing when they urge somebody to do something else? What's that? Exhorting. And it's sort of, it has some power behind it, but it's not like a direct command. It's not like do this or die. It's like this would be good for you to do. Uh, Yeah, strongly suggesting, right? Um, He's urging that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, um, how many of you have asked yourself, why do we do the things that we do in worship? Why do we why do we follow that order? Why do we where did we get this? You know, it's not like we have a liturgy that was handed down from Paul and he just gave us this liturgy and follow this. Anyone heard of the regulative principle of worship? What does that mean? I see a lot of head nodding, so we should know what it means. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because what, what happens when we, when we want to worship God the way we want to worship Him? It's not pretty, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. It's true. Uh, we, uh, when we do things like that, you get like... Um, Nadab and Abihu, does anybody remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu? How long did they last doing their uh, special worship service? It wasn't long. God said, no, no strange fire on my altar, and he zapped them. That was the end of that special worship service. Yeah, they got fired. (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They said, hey, you know, we can get innovative here. Let's just make up our own you know, incense. This is going to be great. I think he'll really like it. We're going to put a little bit of this essential oil, probably some healthy alternatives. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Lord said, hey, this is my worship. I'm the one that sets the terms for it. And so the regulative principle governs what we do in worship. Now, we draw this not from, not from um, um, maybe, uh, descriptions of how we see things in Acts, but we draw it from prescriptions of like what we find here. Timothy is a pastor, and this is uh, admonition that he, he's given in the context of worship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, so he, he, he introduced an innovation that actually hindered the worship, not helped it. Uh, so what Paul is outlining here is, is typically what we call our pastoral prayer, right? And what's, what's included in a pastoral prayer? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people, for kings and all in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, this is why the elders pray for our congregation, for our ministries, for our nation, for our president, for his cabinet, for the troubles that we're having in the world. It's drawn right from here. Paul says this is what should be done in worship. Prayers should be offered. And why, why is it? Why are we praying? Look at verse, the end of verse 2. Right. And it pleases God. Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at the first part. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. He doesn't say that you may lead, singular. He says we, plural. What's he referring to? The church, right? He's referring to the church. So uh, he's, Paul's not interested in personal peace and affluence, right? That was Francis Schaeffer's thing. Uh, that's, that's, what we're, that's the American dream. Personal peace and affluence. I want my ranch house. I don't know if it's a ranch house anymore, but you know, three bedroom, two bath, two cars in the garage, you know, a boat. Yeah, it's bigger now. It's bigger now. This was the 80s version. Um, but uh, uh, that, that's not what he's saying we offer prayers for. What, why would it be important for us as the church to have peace and be able to live a quiet life? Yeah, yeah. We can, we can actually, one, we're alive, right? What happens if you don't have peace and you can't live quietly? Well, you're probably getting persecuted. You know, you're probably in danger and your life is in danger, which is going to lead to fear a lot of times um, and not great boldness. You, you might be hesitant to share the gospel with somebody if it's going to lead to your death, right? You might hold back. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. A contentment even in the whatever stage of life you're facing. Yeah. This is pleasing in the, God, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So Paul's teaching universal salvation, right? Everybody, is, everybody gets saved? That's what he says. Why not? This is a proof text for that. It's either a proof text for open theism that God doesn't know, so he desires it. He's not sure who's going to be saved. He's waiting patiently just like we are. It's either a proof text for that or, or that God does, will give salvation to everyone. 
Why are those options wrong, and what do you think Paul is talking about? Yeah. Everyone, d- d- expand on everyone, because that is key. That's exactly what Paul is getting at. What's, what's a big problem the early church had with the relationship between Jew and Gentile? Who? What? Yeah. Following the law. How does a Gentile become, uh, s- uh, have salvation according to a Judaizer? Well, you, gotta, you can't really be a Gentile. You've got to become a Jew. So is everyone saved? Not really. I mean, Gentiles, they get in by the skin of their teeth, you know, but it's not. But Paul is not, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying everyone, salvation is for everyone. That's the, that's the way that Paul is delineating that God is the Savior God is the Savior of everyone based on, doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. God desires that everyone, every person, will, can be saved, right? Through the knowledge of the truth. And that knowledge of the truth is sort of a, a euphemism. What do you think it's a euphemism for? Knowledge of the truth. Paul uses that all over the place. The gospel, exactly. The faith. The gospel is the content of our faith. And without the knowledge of the gospel, you can't come to saving faith, right? You need, um, uh, you need to understand, you need to have knowledge of the truth in order to come to faith. In Christ, this is why faith comes by hearing the gospel, right? This is uh, um, we were at a wonderful conference this last week about Tolkien, and there were some a lot of great talks. And one of the talks really challenged me to think about beauty and aesthetics in in a way that I haven't in the past. But but one pushback I have is that um, apart from the word hearing, there is no faith. Right. Apart from the word, there is no sacraments. Right. If you just eat bread and drink wine, it's just eating bread and drinking wine. It's not a sacrament. What makes it a means of grace is the word. It's accompanied by the word. So we are logocentric believers, which is why our worship is slightly different than the old covenant, which were not logocentric. They were. Um, they they walked a lot by sight, right? They needed those tangible, the sacrifice that was something they saw and looked at, and they it was tangible in front of them. Whereas we we don't have tangible things. We have we walk by the spirit. So there is some differences. Um, it did challenge me, and I think there's some a, a lot we can learn about beauty and aesthetics and incorporating it because beauty is a part of God's creation, and it is. Sure, sure. Well, what I'm saying, what I'm, all I'm trying to emphasize is that our hearing and we are people of the word. And there are other traditions who will um, emphasize 
say, for instance, Roman Catholics, even Anglicans, um, that our worship should be more than just the word, right? That's just intellectual. Um, but it should be sights and smells and sounds. Yeah, yep. They were e- emphasizing the apologetic use of beauty. My point is is to show that um, w- what Paul is talking about is that faith comes from the knowledge of the truth, which comes through hearing. So I don't think we should pit them against each other, but we should never underemphasize that we are people of the word, that faith comes by hearing, and that there is a, the, a content of our faith, the faith, which is the knowledge of the truth. So that's what I'm emphasizing. Paul continues, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Why, why does he inf, inf, it seem to kind of um, from verse 3, he's moved in verse 1 and 2 to prayer. Now he seems to be digressing in verse 3 through 7 uh, about the gospel. Why do you think he's making this kind of digression from prayer, which should be um, a part of the worship, to now digressing about the gospel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were polytheistic. The Gentiles were, for sure. They had um, a pantheon of gods. And... Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. And we have to, where, where do we confront this in our current culture? I mean, how, I mean how, how many of you have heard the argument that there's many ways to God? Right? It's just I have a different path than you, but we're, we're all going to the same place. And what is Paul saying? What is a mediator? What is a mediator? A go-between, right? Yeah. Yeah, you need somebody. You can't approach to God on your own, right? So you need somebody to go in between. And Jesus is that person that goes between, who mediates between you and God. And he's the only one. He's the only mediator. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, self-actualization becomes the main goal, right? And you don't 
you don't need a mediator, right? You are the arbiter of your own truth, your own standard, and you don't need to go between because you don't need God, right? If there is a God, he doesn't care about what's going on in your life, except when you need him, then he's there, right? That This is moralistic therapeutic deism, right? It's God cares about us being good and nice, right? That's the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment in our culture? Thou shalt be nice, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it still is, but you have to be nice according to their terms. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's very dogmatic. It's a very dogmatic nice, but... um. Thou shalt be nice, and it's moralistic in that everybody should be good. Good people gets good just gets a very arbitrary definition. It's therapeutic in that it's my self-actualization is the goal. It's the purpose of all of it. And it's deistic in that God, there is a God, but he's not really intimately involved in the world. He's more like a divine butler. If I need him, he's there to, you know, but he doesn't really, he's not really, serve any other purpose so that's very popular that is a a great depiction of many many evangelicals today yeah 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 there was a groundbreaking study done by christian smith 2000 Six, he studied thousands of teenagers and then tracked them later in 2014 and came up with this acronym, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, to describe what they, how they defined their faith. Um, and these are millennials, basically. Um, and he charted, charted them and, and their, their, um, their growth in their faith and this definition of it. And I, I would commend his study. It's called Soul Searching. It's very, if you want to understand millennials, you want to understand kids and evangelicalism today, it's very helpful. So, um, but why does, why does he, okay, we have one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Why does he put it that way? Why is it important that Jesus is a man? That he can know us just as he knows God, yeah. Yeah. Man sinned, and the only way out of man's condition is for another man not to sin. And since none of us could, we needed God-man. We needed Jesus to come as God in flesh. So Paul's emphasizing that, but he doesn't just say the man Jesus, but he says the man Christ Jesus. He's got three offices, basically. What's he, what's, what describes, what is the Christ? The Messiah, which is who? Which is what? From the Old Testament, who is that? The anointed one who is what? Priest and king, right? So you, you, you hear... Christ, you think David. You hear Christ, you think Aaron. Right? These are, anoint- these are the anointed. Um, so Jesus is fulfilling the office of the prophet, a priest, and a king. Right? He's a mediator. He's a prophet. He goes between man and God. He speaks on behalf of God to man. He speaks 
to God on behalf of man. So he is, uh, he is these. So right here we see these three offices that Jesus fulfills: that of a mediator, that of Christ, and and as a man, he's um, one of us who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So what is a ransom? There's only a couple places where this word is used. Gave up something in order to get something back. Right. Yeah, he gave his life so that we could have our life. He becomes a substitute for us. And uh, a ransom is paid. It's the debt is taken care of. Um, and this is why does Paul say the testimony given at the proper time? Why is Jesus' ransom and the testimony given at the proper time? What does that mean? Why does he put it that way? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, uh, John, do you want to say something? Exactly. So, you know, in, in, in the inscrutable ways of God, the time when Christ came was perfect for his coming, right? It's already what has transpired in salvation history up to that point culminates with Christ. And that is enough history has gone by, enough of uh, filling out of the definition of what is it that this Messiah is going to be like. This person promised in Genesis 3.16 is going to crush the head of the serpent. Right? We call that the Proto-Evangelion. Right? It's the gospel preached to Adam. Well, all of that is filled out through the rest of salvation history, culminating at this perfect time when Jesus comes. Right? And that's what Peter talks about. The, the, the men of old, the prophets, longed for that day. They looked forward to the anticipation of when would it be that the Christ would come and suffer. And Paul is saying this was at the perfect time, the proper time. And the testimony was given. And that witness is, of course, the apostolic witness, right? They're, they're apostles. What qualifies them to be apostles? They sat under his teaching. What else? They were witness to his resurrection, right? Those are the two qualifications for being a, an apostle from Acts chapter 1. Remember, they go to replace uh, Judas to add to the 12, and they list out those qualities. He had to be with us from the beginning and be a witness of his resurrection. What about Paul? Paul was in those things. How can he be apostle? He did see the resurrected Lord, Right? Right, he's received a revelation directly from Jesus. So Paul is kind of an outlier, you know. We uh, and this is why Paul had to defend himself. Even what we see right here, right? He says, "For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying." Why does he have to say that? Well, because people don't believe him, right? They think 
You weren't with Jesus. You'd, how could you have seen him? And plus, you persecuted the church. So how can you really be an apostle? And Paul had to fight that charge his entire life, right? Um, so... Dates? Uh, he probably... We don't know when he was born. Probably died somewhere around 64, A.D. 64. Prior to the great persecution of Nero. Um, But uh, we don't know when he was born. Um, The average lifespan was about 37. Paul had a really rough life. So, um, you know, he... uh, Well... Probably not. He probably was a little boy during Jesus' death uh, because he, in Acts chapter 7, is with Stephen. He's there at the stoning of Stephen. And, you know, this is, um, it doesn't tell us exactly how long the problems in Jerusalem took to mount up to where the widows are not getting taken care of, but it's probably not more than a year or so. Maybe a couple of years, but probably within a year. And so, uh, you know, those that first section of Acts is happening pretty rapidly. And Paul is an adult. He's already been schooled and at, with Gamaliel. So um, he's probably in his 20s, um, maybe maybe mid-20s, and, uh, and then lives, you know, another 30 years. So we're speculating. We don't know. Okay, let's move on um, to the really difficult texts. Paul in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right. The good stuff. Yeah. These uh, a lot of pastors skip these verses. They say, ah, let's, we're going to go to we're going to go to chapter three. <laughs> so remember the context. We're talking about a worship service. This is a place of worship. We've already talked about prayer. We've talked about the con- the reason we're praying is because of the gospel. Christ is at the center of our worship. Then he says, "I desire then that in every place the men should pray." Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then he starts to speak to the ladies. What Paul's showing is that he is an able exegete of people. What it means to exegete is open up. That's what exegesis is. You open up the meaning of, some, of the text. But you have to be able to exegete people too. And Paul can do that. How is Paul a good reader of people? Why do we learn that from these texts? He was like them, and he knows the sinful tendencies 
that men and women have. And they're not the same. How many think that men and women are the same? Right? But this is, why is this such a confusing fact in our culture today? That, that it's possible that men and women can be different. You know, it's all the way down to the cellular level. We are different. It's not like we share everything. We have all the same organs, but none of them are designed to function the same way. They all work differently. Our whole bodies are designed differently. Complementary, but different, right? And so this, uh, this idea that men and women are the same is just absurd. And Paul very clearly knows that. Men don't struggle with the same sins that women do. Vice versa. Well, what do men struggle with? This is generally true. Men are angry. It's, tr- it's generally true that men struggle with anger. Now, I want you to imagine a situation. Bill is not here, so we're going to pick on Bill. <laughs> this is why you have to come to Sunday school. If you don't come to Sunday school, you can get picked on. I know he's traveling with his family, but imagine that Ron is doing the pastoral prayer, but he's got a beef with Bill. Bill has got bad theology, according to Ron. So Ron gets up there, and he's praying his pastoral prayer, and he begins to attack Bill in the prayer. He's praying, he's lifting up holy hands, and he's saying, God, I pray that you would smite Bill and his errors. That you would show him how wrong he is that he thinks this way. And you, you could see how, because we have such a strong desire to be right, right? We want to be right, and it often leads to anger when we're not respected, when our opinions are not valued. And so it leads to division. And remember the context. you got a bunch of law teachers. They want to be law teachers. They think they got the right interpretation, and they're using the service of worship as a way to divide the people, right? And this, is, this goes back to the Pharisees. What did the Pharisee pray standing on the corner? Thank God I'm not like that guy. Thank God I'm not like Bill, right? That's what Ron is praying. And, and, uh, and Paul says, no, none of that in worship. When you worship, when you are gathered together, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. These things should not mark the people of God, especially in prayer. So, then he moves on to talk about the sins that women struggle with. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Right, so, I mean, this is one area where we have begun to see men struggling with the same sin. So, I want to be careful because it's generally true that women like to adorn themselves to be looked at, but lately... We have a lot of effeminate men who are more concerned with their outward appearance, just like a woman. They spend as much time primping and preening so that they can be seen by others, right? They're like peacocks. So I want to be careful that we don't exclude 
that because that's a serious sin in our age. Effeminacy is a sin. It's a perversion of God's created order. God created men to be masculine. They should adorn themselves in that way. That doesn't mean flannels and, you know, lumberjack all the time. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying that there is a way to present yourself as a man that comes off like a woman. And we ought to be cautious of that. But, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, they used to braid their hair with gold woven through it, and it would be all uh, shiny, and you would see how rich and wealthy they were based upon um, the gold woven in their braids of their hair. So Paul is saying, nope, none of that. Yeah. Yeah, it is okay, yes. He says braided, braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. He is, um, there is, let's see. And so it was a cultural thing that there, Paul is taking a general principle and he's making application specific. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, we don't have a problem with women adorning themselves and not being modest. But it means it might look a little different, right? Uh, it's not exactly one for one in our culture, but we can all use our imagination and think of ways that uh, w- women might be immodest in worship. Yeah. Right. And it's an issue of the heart when you're going to church and you know that about yourself. But self-control is saying, I'm actually going to put flesh on because this is saying a little bit too much about myself. Or right. I'm going to skip the red lipstick for the moment. But it's the flip side of the coin for women. But it's something that can be outwardly seen, distracting, and a heart issue right. for the woman herself. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And that, and that leads into my question. What, why is he putting this here? In the context of worship, why would this be a problem? Men are going to look at women, right? Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a way for it was a way for them to par- par- parade. This is what I have. I've got gold all through my braids, and you've you know you don't have that, and uh, and I, I'm. I'm better than you. So yeah, there's a, a pecking order among the women, but it's and it's distracting for the men, right? It it's not conducive for worship because their desire is for them for 
to have eyes on them, whether it's the women or the men, right? The point of adorning themselves in that way is to be seen by anyone, which is distracting from the purpose of coming to worship, which is not to be seen, but to see God, right? To worship Him. In the temple, yes. In Judaism, this is hugely different. Yeah. There were. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, problematic. And, and also, I want us to see how what Paul is doing is not Paul being a misogynist, um, but Paul is, is concerned for the women's well-being in the church. And this is not contributing to them being godly. right? This is detracting from their ability to worship God and for others around them. And that's what Paul is concerned with, right? So uh, we, we really have a hard time, especially when we talk about submission, when we talk about the verse 15, which is fraught with a lot of difficulties. We really have a hard time getting out of our culture. We are just swimming in feminism, right, which is such a pernicious lie. It is a lie from hell because it tries to make the sexes equal, to say that they are the same. But they're not the same. They're not equal, right? They are different. Now, their equality before God is the same. They're created as image bearers, right? But it, they're not, the, there is distinctions and roles that have to be maintained, and we'll see why when we get to verse 12 and 13. Yes? Yeah, he's talking about in every, whatever house church you're at, this is the way it should be done. It is the context of worship, that every place is, this is not just Ephesus, but every place that we have planted a church, you and I, Timothy, and others. Nope. No, you, gotta, you have a different form of structure for the home, right? That's Ephesians 5. And six, right? Dennis. Mm-hmm. Well, sure, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Paul's not really addressing, Paul's not really addressing that right now, but we, we have other texts in Scripture, you know, that would... Uh, well, actually, he does address this, and we'll talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. The prairie muffins. They're not very really good at it. Right. <laughs> Sure. You know, there's also, you know, obviously I'm not 
Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, you know, sexually feminine. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Paul's not advocating that you look like a box and you have, a, you know, something that, or you have a burqa on and we can't really tell that you are a woman. Formless, that's not the point he's making. The point he's making is don't be ostentatious. Don't be flamboyant. Don't draw attention to yourself. But adorn yourself instead with good works. Right? Those are the things that should adorn a woman. So then he continues. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, we focus in on the submissiveness part, but we miss that Paul says, let a woman learn. Paul is creating a space within the worshiping community for a woman to learn. This is... As Leslie pointed out, this is new. This is not the way that it was before. The Jews were not creating a space for women to learn, right? They didn't need to. They could just learn from their husbands at home. But Paul is saying, look, men being angry is creating divisions in the church. Women dressing flamboyantly and immodestly is creating divisions in the church. Rather, we need to create a space where women and men can learn the knowledge of the truth, right? To hear the gospel. A place where they are not distracted by men's anger or women's immodesty. We need a worshiping community that fosters learning even among women. And this is with all submissiveness. And what he means by that is not in a, in a quarreling, in a sense of quarreling. Um, in, a, in being contentious, right, in, in arguing with the elders of the church. That's what he's talking about with all submissiveness, is being, like all of us, under the word. Yeah, Le- not standing at the same height as the word, right, if, but under the word, submissive to it, right, under and specifically in the, what we'll see next, in the next verse, in those who have been authorized to be expositors of the apostolic truth. Timothy and Paul, right? Somebody who is authorized to take the words of God and declare them to his people through the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. So to sit under the teaching and preaching. Right? That's a different heart attitude than somebody who says, challenges every word of the pastor or the preacher. Now, I, don't, I don't think that, that means that there's no room for challenge, but it, it's the heart attitude Paul's after. Right? What's, your, what's your posture in worship? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's 1 Corinthians 11, and 
And I think that there is some, some truth to that, right? That the, if you have a contentious issue or you have a contentious problem, probably should go through your husband before it goes through the elders just because of proper headship and the authority of your husband over you. Um, but uh, I don't think that detracts from you in Sunday school raising a question about the text, right? Uh, I think that we would want to we would want to drill down to the heart attitude. Why are you questioning? Because uh, feminists do gymnastics with these texts. They have come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. Most of them just say, Paul didn't write it. It was written by the second century church just in order to hedge in their own power and their own ability to govern the church. They say Paul, or they just say, Paul was wrong. He shouldn't have said that. He was wrong. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the context matters. What what are we talking about? Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside and taught him. Priscilla is a woman, right? She taught Apollos the truth of the gospel. There's nothing wrong. I've learned tons from women, right? It's not that's not what Paul is talking about. And, and specifically from verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So Paul, one thing that the feminists like to do is say that this kind of teaching and this kind of authority is negative. As in a domineering, as in I stand over you and I'm going to teach you, I'm going to authoritatively direct you. And Paul's against that kind of domineering. But the words are never ever used in Greek that way. So it's a very forced way to think about it. Teaching is positive, and authority within that structure is positive. It's not a negative thing. What he's talking about is the authoritative teaching of those who would um, explain the apostolic gospel, the teaching. So, the faith. There are those women are not allowed to teach that in the context of the public worship, right? So, we would say... Women shouldn't be preachers. They can't preach. Right? It's not, Paul is not limiting teaching, um, and we're going to see this in verse 15. Um, Paul is not limiting women to never teaching men or boys in other contexts, right? Women make up most of the school teachers, um, and that's a good thing, right? They're nurturers, and they have gifts of, of um, especially with younger children of helping them learn, 
of teaching them. So Paul is talking about the, the context of public worship, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the same context, right? What were the tongues for? Uh, the tongues are not like what we think of ecstatic Pentecostals praying in their seats. But somebody would come and give a message in another language, and then an interpreter would do it. So basically it was a sermon and then an interpretation of the sermon. So the women shouldn't be getting up in that context and speaking. Right? They should be quiet in the church, listening and learning. Um, and uh, eventually, those charismatic gifts ended with the, uh, the end of the apostles. So we no longer have people. This is why we don't have somebody come up and speak in tongues and then looking for an interpretation. We don't have, those are sign gifts that ended with the apostolic age. Right? So they pointed to the end-breaking of the gospel. So even at that time, there wasn't like one pastor who preached regularly every Lord's Day. Multiple men would get up and who were apostles in the sense that they were a part of the apostolic entourage and would deliver the word of God. And so it wasn't, it wasn't as structured as it is now. And so Paul is, Paul is dealing with a particular problem in Corinth where there, there is excess. They are loving these spiritual gifts. And it's getting, it's getting into a wild show that's not done decently and, and in order. Because that's what in Corinth Paul is driving them to see. These things have to be done decently and in order. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I you know, uh, try to handle it apologetically, delicately and warning them like, look, you can't sit under the preaching of the gospel to somebody who's not paying attention to the word of God, the clear simple truths of God's word they don't pay attention to that, why would you listen to them on the bigger things, right? So I would warn them, don't continue there. Leave. Save your soul. Right. And Paul Paul is very clear about this. He grounds it in creation. So a lot of people will say, okay, well, this is a problem in Ephesus. They have a huge um, feminist, you know, push for egalitarianism in Ephesus. But that's not the case everywhere. So Paul's just directing this to Ephesus. We don't need to worry about it. But that's not the case. He goes on and says in verse 13, for that is causal 
This is the reason for Adam was formed first, then Eve. What? Why does that matter? And what, what hap, what's happening at this point in human history when Adam is formed first and then Eve? What's going on in the world? Oh, it's a mess, right? No, it's perfect. Very good, God said. God said it was very good that Adam was formed first and Eve was formed out of Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She relied on the instruction of her husband, which apparently he wasn't very good at. Yeah, it's true, yeah. You know, like, it's looking like it's this grand thing that women are not able to participate in, but it's a very small amount of men right. who are right. to participate in it. You right. Know, it's not a generalized thing where it's like you're excluded from this mass group. It's like it's a very small particular calling for a particular right. group of Right, right. Yeah, and it's sort of like the transgender who rails against women. Like, I can give birth to... Well, no, you can't. Only women can give birth, right? They're the only ones created with a womb. That's not, what's the word for man-hating? Misandry? Yeah. That's not that because you have a womb. That doesn't mean you hate men, right? And are, it's so exclusive. So, yeah, we, we sometimes, our culture just inundates us and we can't see what's just very plainly true and that's that not all men are called to be pastors either it's very very small percentage so before there was sin it was good that adam was created first and eve was formed out of him for him created to be his helpmeet for him and adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor so even the after the fall, the, it still didn't change. The created order is the same. And Paul proves that. It was very good when God created them, and this was the order. This is the roles and distinctions that God gave for men and women. Even after the fall, these distinctions are still there. They're still in place. And, and that's because women was deceived and became a transgressor. So therefore... A woman should not be a teacher in the church, right? Whatever that means, it means that this is not wise in the context of worship for a woman to exercise this teaching and authoritative office for the good of the church. And that's rooted in creation. It's not rooted in Ephesus or a cultural thing or Paul or Paul's misogyny. It's not in any of those things. God designed the world that way. And it functions best when it operates that way. And it's not hateful. It's not bigoted. It's not misogynistic. It's rooted in the way God designed creation. 
And he continued, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, this is challenging. So, women are only saved if they have children, right? Well, I mean, what's Paul talking about? Okay, Jesus came through childbearing. Some people argue like that. I think that childbearing, what, what makes a woman specifically a woman is the fact that she has a different biology than a man. And part of that biology is that she can produce a child, and a man can't. So childbearing is a synecdoche, right? It's something, a, one small part that stands in for the whole. It, Paul is talking about what is proper for a woman, What is the sphere that she is to walk in? Well, we know now it's not preaching in the church. What is the sphere? The sphere is her nurture, her home, raising children, right? And uh, it, it goes all the way back to the curse that God placed on Eve. What was the curse that he placed on her? Pain in childbirth. And there is a lot of of good commentators who believe that it's not just giving birth. That's not just the pain he's talking about. But what happens in Eve's life right after this? Her son murders her other son. Reality in living in a fallen world is that there is pain in raising child children. Can I get an amen? Right? It's difficult. It's difficult for women to rear children who... Continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I take this, and some translations shade it, but the ESV leaves it kind of open. Yet she will be saved through childbearing is singular. Then it says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness. Now, some think that he's speaking just particular woman and then women in general. But I think he's saying, a woman will be saved in the faithful nurture of her covenant responsibilities, if her children continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. How does she overcome the curse in her life? She raises and nurtures children who fear the Lord. They're not a pain. They are not a pain to their, they're not a shame to their mother, right? They honor her. They bring her honor. And so in her Uh, faithfully walking out of her role, which is different than her husband, she is saved from the curse of the pain of childbearing. I think that's what Paul's saying. Where do single women fit in? Well, um, single women should be devoted to Christ, Paul says. And so, um, and one thing that we, we often get really hung up on is we try to define everything by the outliers and we never want to do that so the normative pattern is for women to marry men to marry that's norm now the outliers god is faithful and he upholds them gives them gifts of celibacy so that they're content but what we define as singleness and what we see growing in our culture is really just discontent and an unwillingness to 
uh, submit to God's normal pattern, right, because of selfishness and because most of those people, most of the people that I've talked to who are single, they don't have the gift of celibacy. They yearn for a husband. And maybe it's, uh, but somebody who's been given the gift of celibacy doesn't have that problem. They're content. And so they are serving Christ, Paul said. And the, they, you know, oftentimes had f- special functions in the church. Yes, Dennis. Not having sex. And having a gift of that. Like you don't desire it like others do. Yeah, yeah. The women who can do all these things. Like, we have a utter, wonderful blessing of a gift in which God gave us many talents right. to multiply, not for burying the ground, but we look at him as a hard master. And right. He's got a lot of good work to right. us. And, um, and it, it is hard in our culture if you're going to talk to an unbeliever and praise raising children and you're not going to say, Dang, I need a shot of whiskey after spending the day with my atrocious children. <laughs> such little snots. That you say that, and you have instant friends. You say, "Thanks be to God for the trials that I face with my kids and raising them, and training them, and showing them their sin, and praying, you know, for them." You're yeah. Something's wrong with you. Yeah. I'm outer space. Right. Yeah. No, it's true, and I think Paul is is setting up a contrast. Like, look, this is not the sphere where God has called women to teach and have authority. But they have a sphere, and it's important. Covenant nurture in their homes. They're functioning as a helpmeet for their husband. These are valuable roles that God has given to women that should not be diminished. And that's why feminism has been so damaging. It is a lie because it promises something so you, you trade the submission of your husband who loves you and is called to die to himself and to treat you like Christ for submission to a boss at a career, at an employer who doesn't love you, is not called to treat you like Christ, and will mistreat you and will take advantage of you. Right? That's, the, that's the trade-off, and you get the the joys and beauty of a career instead of the covenant nurturer of your family, right? Leslie. Yeah. Yeah, yep. Sure, yeah. Nope, nope, they don't, yeah. We are way over time, um, but, I, but we made it. We got through verse 15. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, our time in your word, difficult things for us to hear. 
We struggle in many ways with these sins, and we ask that you'd continue to give us clarity and understanding as we strive to be more like Christ, to create a space of worship, uh, a place where women can learn alongside of men, a place where men are not given to anger and quarreling, and a, and, and a recognition that you have ordained proper roles and distinctions between the sexes. We pray that you'd give us clarity and understanding so that we may live faithfully according to your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.